that would be great. I was told by a certain brother, he shall remain unnamed, that I better not punt it. That's what he said. I'm pretty sure that means mess it up, but I feel great, so. <laughs> it was fun. I laughed. I don't know if you guys think that's funny. I thought it was funny. Um, thank you, Isaiah. Well, Joel's out of town right now, so here I am, and I, wanted, I want you guys to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. Uh, we're going to cover a decent amount of material, I could say, today, um, because there's a, lot, there's a lot of historical stuff I want to get into. That's what I got my degree in, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy that this morning. But I'm really excited for this coming holiday season, and uh, you know, just really grateful for the worship. That was awesome, and uh, I'm just encouraged to be here. But let's say a quick prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this time, and we just pray that you would bless this opportunity to hear your word, and uh, just bless everyone here, Lord, that we would just be built up together in unity and in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 36, that's where we're going to be, uh, the book of Isaiah is mostly prophetic, right? He, it's mostly poetry, but in 36 through 39, suddenly it's a historical account. And people have wondered why that is and what to do with these passages. And so I spent a lot of time reading them and thinking on it. Uh, and, and I believe it goes back somewhat to the concept that we talked about last time I preached. You know, this idea of a covenant. And the people in Isaiah chapter 28 had tried to make a covenant, sort of theoretically, with death. Right? You guys remember that? And they felt like, we'll be safe because, you know, we're not going to die. And the Lord was saying, no, that's not how it works. Like, your covenant with death will come to nothing. You need to make a covenant with me. Well, in Isaiah 36, we see the Assyrian kingdom. How do I get this thing to work? There it is. So the title of today's sermon is Knowing God's Covenant. And we see the Assyrian Empire, which started out, I have a pointer, it's awesome, right here, very small. And in a really brief period, conquered pretty much the most important areas of the Middle East in that time. Really, really swiftly. And this is, this is at the time when the, the kingdom of Israel and of Judah were split. And Isaiah actually lives here in Jerusalem, and he's preaching to them, but he also preaches to the Israelites here. But they've been conquered by Assyria, which is what he prophesied. But now Assyria has decided, now it's time to capture this. And so they invade. And of course, this is actually prophesied by Isaiah himself in the earlier chapters. And we're going to see how that story plays out um, and why this, these chapters, 36 and 37, are suddenly historical narrative instead of this poetry that we've become accustomed to. So, it says, whoops, did it twice. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, King of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, 
the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I ha have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Okay, let's go back to the map. See this right here? They've invaded, and they've, and they've actually captured, this is something that we probably would miss, the city of Lachish here. And they've also captured Ashkelon. They've captured all the towns around Jerusalem. So essentially, Judah has been conquered, except for one city. And Lachish is the second most important city. So the Assyrians are feeling very confident. But they don't necessarily want to fight, right? Because they also have to fight Egypt. So what do they do? They send a guy, and his name is the Rabshaka. That's, that means chief of princes. The Rabshaka goes, and he gives a message to the Israelites who are in Jerusalem. And he tells them things that are true, right? And, and actually, a lot of those things are the exact same things, and we'll get into this more, but they're the exact same things that Isaiah has been saying. And it's exactly why they've been able to conquer so much of Judah. But he also gets into some lies eventually. Man, I'm not good at making this thing work. There we go. Uh, so then... They respond to him. So he gives this message. He says, basically, surrender. Like, you have no hope. Egypt's not going to save you. The Lord has sent me. Your God has sent me to conquer you. So there's no way he's going to save you. And they respond to him uh, in verse 11. It says, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. So they're afraid. And they know that the people can hear what he's saying because he's speaking Hebrew. And it, you know, it leads to an interesting question. Why does this guy know Hebrew if he's an Assyrian? Hebrew's not a well-known language in the ancient world outside of Israel. Everybody spoke Aramaic or you know, Chaldean or Assyrian. Like he had his own languages he could speak. And Aramaic was kind of like English in our day where everybody seems to know it relatively. That's what Aramaic was like. So everybody knew Aramaic. So he's like, you know, let's do, let's do Aramaic instead because we understand it. And that's the normal language. Don't speak Hebrew where everyone else can hear you because this message is scary and we don't want them to hear. And the commander, so why does the commander know Hebrew? Well, there's, there's a few theories. As I was thinking about this, I wondered if he was in fact himself a Jew. And I looked into some stuff and found that there's actually an ancient Jewish tradition that he was Isaiah's own son. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's definitely interesting why the Jews thought that. And we'll see why they thought that, because not only does he speak Hebrew, he has a really good knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he uses them against them. And he also knows Isaiah's message very, very well. 
Okay, so this guy could be a Hebrew, but either way, he knows the Bible. And he's very, he's, he's very capable at bringing it out for them to understand. Um, <clears throat> okay. Then the commander replied, what is it, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Uh, that's a harsh threat. And he's not joking. The Assyrians would do these things to people. He's being serious here. And of course, not a fun thing to hear. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew. I lost it. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot save you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says, the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvam? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save this land from me? How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Okay, so now he's starting to say to all the people, you will not be safe. So make peace and come out and we'll do nice things for you. We'll take you to a new land and we'll do all these things. And so I want to, first of all, I want to make my first point is this. My first point is this. The Bible is historically reliable. It is historically reliable. There's a lot of doubt and shade thrown at the Bible because it's a religious text and it's biased. And I'll tell you what, there's not a writer ever who wasn't biased in some way. So that's not a good argument for why it's unreliable. And we can see here, I want to show you guys something. This is the prophecies of Isaiah on the left. This is what Isaiah said would happen. And this is what we see in Isaiah 36, sometime later, actually happens. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah, verse 3 through 6, Isaiah tells the king of, Israel, of Judah that, um, that Assyria will come. No matter what he does, Assyria is going to come and conquer the land. And in 36, 1 and 2, guess who shows up? Assyria. And then in 22, 14 through 15, there's a smaller one, but I thought this was interesting. Isaiah says to Shebna that he's going to be replaced because he is not a godly leader. And what we see in 36, in verse 3, is that Shebna is no longer the steward of the house, which is what he used to be. Eliakim is. And Shebna is just the scribe. He just writes down whatever the other guy tells him. He's been demoted. And Isaiah saw it coming because of his ungodliness. And then we see in 31, verse 4 through 5, it says that God will pass over, that is, defend Jerusalem from Assyria. Now think about all the cities the Assyrians have captured. God says, they're going to come and they're going to conquer you except for Jerusalem. And we'll see later on, that's exactly what happens. And then in verse 31, or chapter 31, 8 through 9, it says that God alone will do all the work. The people will not lift a finger. And essentially, that's exactly what happens. 
just a few, ver few chapters later. So what we see is that all of these things, and this is just a tiny list, were predicted by Isaiah and came to pass because the word of God is reliable. And this isn't attested to just by the Bible because then people say, oh, it's just so biased. No, it's attested to by all sorts of historical evidence. This is the siege ramp at Lachish. You know, there was a time when people thought Lachish didn't even exist. And then they found the city, and you know what else they found? The Assyrian siege ramp that they used to destroy it. It's like, actually, I was shown this at the University of Minnesota. It's remarkable. So we know for a fact that they captured Lachish. What we also know is this. This is from a historian who found a palace in Nineveh. That's the Assyrian capital. It was Sennacherib's palace. And when Sennacherib went back to Assyria, he had this room built. It's called the Lachish Room. And it says... Here, therefore, was the actual picture of the taking of Lachish, the city as we know from the Bible, besieged by Sennacherib when he sent his generals to demand tribute of Hezekiah, in which he had captured before their return evidence of the most remarkable character to confirm the interpretation of the inscriptions and to identify the king who caused them to be engraved with the Sennacherib of Scripture. This highly interesting series of bas reliefs contained, moreover, an undoubted representation of a king, a city, and a people with whose names we are acquainted and of an event described by the Holy Writ. This was not dug up until the 1800s. And yet they're saying, wow, this is exactly what we read about in the scripture. Isn't that interesting? And you can go to London and see this today. And then this is what they found. It's called the Taylor Prism. It's a, it's a really big uh, like clay stone tablet thing that they wrote records on. And the Assyrians made this. It's called the Taylor Prism. It's got multiple sides, obviously. And this is what he said about his invasion of Judah. This is Sennacherib's own words. He said, as for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took his plunder, 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep, as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His towns which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashad, Ekron, and Gaza. So what's interesting about this, what's interesting about this is that historians have long said, that's an accurate description of what happened. And what they then say is, therefore, what the Bible says is not what happened. Because what we'll see is that in the Bible, it says that the Assyrian army was destroyed by the Lord in a single night. And that's why Jerusalem was not captured. But what you notice is that he doesn't talk about capturing Jerusalem. It's almost like he forgot that it ever happened. And he just pretends like nothing happened. He says, you know, I captured Lachish. And I made this whole room to celebrate my capturing of Lachish. But Jerusalem was far more important. Why not make a room about capturing Jerusalem? Because it never happened. And why wouldn't it have happened? According to him, well, I made him tremble. He was like a little bird. And that actually did happen. But why wouldn't you just then capture the city? Hezekiah was afraid, but he didn't surrender. The reason he didn't capture the city is because his army was gone. And he couldn't do it. But he doesn't want to record that. You know, the Bible, to me, it's quite clear that the Bible tells the true story. And Sennacherib is lying because it makes him look 
really bad to get his butt whooped by a bunch of guys like, like the Judahites. Okay, they're not very strong. They're not impressive. Their, their kingdom, we saw, was like this little dot on the map compared to his. And he's like, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that. Let's just pretend it never happened. And that's exactly what we see. It's amazing how reliable the Bible truly is. I have seen so many accounts of people saying, this city never existed, and that guy was never alive, and that event never happened. And then as we discover more, it always is confirmed. You know, until I think about 2008, people said Pontius Pilate, the guy who crucified Jesus, never existed. And then they found a thing called the Pilate inscription, which says Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. And they were like, never mind, we're sorry. <laughs> and it's like, why do they constantly do this? You know, there's a bias in our world against the scriptures. And the scriptures are not the ones, not the thing that is biased. It's our world because they don't like the message. Just like they didn't like Jesus' message or Isaiah's message or any of the prophets. And so anyways, the point is simply this. The Bible can be relied upon. And we shouldn't worry about when people attack it on, well, I'm a historian and I know that this never happened. Well, first of all, you probably don't know as certainly as you think. And secondly, the Bible keeps being vindicated and proven right time and time again. So Sennacherib's a liar, and he feels bad about himself after what happens. And this is what it says. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah didn't foresee all these things happening because he was so clever. He foresaw them because God showed him. Amen? Okay, now there's something else that comes along here, though. And it's interesting how it parallels what happens in Isaiah. You have the true prophet that we should listen to. And then he says this in 2 Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, brought, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So he says, even in the times when we had people like Isaiah, there were other people speaking lies. And now that is true even today. There are many, many churches in the world, and frankly, many of them bring the word of the Lord into disrepute. Now, that doesn't mean we can be arrogant and say we never have done wrong. That's not the point. The point is we need to pay very careful attention to the true prophets and do what they say. And we need to be able to tell the difference between a true and a false prophet. Okay, so I want to give you guys an example here in Isaiah of a false prophet right here in chapter 36, like we already saw. This is the message that Isaiah gave on the left. It's also... I'm going to contrast it with the message that the Rabshaka gave on the right. So you see that they're all from, this is Isaiah, and also a little bit outside of Isaiah, but good stuff. And then this is the Rabshaka. So I want you guys to notice this. He tells six truths, 
and he only tells two lies. The Rabshaka, this is interesting. I just think this is really interesting, so I want to point it out. The Rabshaka was sent by Sennacherib to this upper pool. And so was Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 3, by the Lord. It's the only time where it describes where they're at. And they're in the same place. It's almost like Isaiah was standing here preaching at one point, and the Rabshaka knew about it. I don't know how he knew that. And so he's like, I'm going to go to the same spot so that everyone will know that I'm just like him. I tell the truth, right? So he gives himself this appearance of telling the truth. And then he, and then he says, Isaiah said that in chapter 7, that there would be a judgment sent by God. The Rabshaka confirms that. He says, we are the judgment sent by God. That's not untrue. That's exactly accurate. Same thing here. It claimed that a rebellion had taken place. A rebellion against the Lord in this one, and a rebellion against Sennacherib. So on the surface, it's true. There's a rebellion. And so they're using the same message. They were both opposed the idea of an Egyptian alliance. See, when you're facing a larger enemy than you, what do you do? You get a bigger guy to come stand next to you and help you, right? It's like if, uh, let's see, who's a big guy around here? Eli was coming at me. I'd be like, yo, Bryce, let's go. We can both take him, right? And that's what we would do. And the Lord was saying, don't do that. Egypt will not help you. Egypt is not big enough to help you. Only I am. Well, guess who also said that? The Rabshaka. The Rabshaka said, Egypt won't help you. And guess what they didn't? Egypt was also conquered by Assyria. And he was anti-self-reliance. He says, your own ideas are not going to save you. Isaiah said that, and the Rabshaka said that. And he says that the false gods have been destroyed. And he actually uses the same set of gods. When he says, the Rabshaka says this. Uh, let's see, what's the verse? I wrote it down. That's good. Verse 19. The Rabshaka says, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? That's the exact thing that Isaiah said earlier on. Like, they're not here. They won't help you. They didn't help them, and they won't help you. No, no nation's gods could stop Assyria, and the Rabshaka agrees. That's very true, Isaiah. Good point. But then, this is where the lies come in. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Isaiah, and here, let's just do this. this is, so I want you guys to compare this. In Isaiah chapter 1, in Exodus 3, these are the words of God, and these are the words of the Rabshaka over here. He says, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in Isaiah 1, he says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. So see this right here. This is the word of the Lord telling them, if you follow my covenant, remember we talked about covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And if you follow it, the greater party, that is the Lord, will bless you. And if you go against it, there will be a curse. And covenants were extremely common in the ancient world. If you wanted to have a relationship with somebody, you made a covenant. Right? Kind of like we call a marriage a covenant. It's the same thing. Okay, so he says, you'll eat the good things. Look what the Rav Shaka says. He says, I will take, he says, then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree. Like the Rabshaka knows what he's talking about. He's like, see, make a covenant with me. Look what he says, make peace with me. Come now, let us settle the matter. The Lord is giving the same message. Make peace with this great king. I, the Lord, am a great king, and you've sinned against me. You need to make peace with me. And the Rabshaka says, you know, Sennacherib's a great king, and you've sinned against him. You've, you've rebelled against him. Now make peace. 
and the blessing will be the same as the one that the Lord has promised. All the things that the Lord can give you, Sennacherib can do it too. And guess what? The Lord isn't here. I'm here with a big army. How do you feel about that? Now, this sounds pretty tempting, actually. I think about all the things the world just offers to us so much easier than we could get them any other way through greed and lying and cheating, through not being faithful to the covenant with God. We can actually get ahead in the world sometimes. Jesus was offered something incredibly similar by Satan. And Satan tempted him. He brought him to the temple. And he says, see all the kingdoms of the world? Remember, this is the promise that God made to Jesus, that he would give him the whole earth. And Satan says, I'll give you all of them. I can do it too. All you have to do is bow down to me instead of to him. And Jesus, of course, does not take the bait. But look at how Satan always uses the same tactics. He puts you in a precarious position where you're in danger and you feel threatened, and then he offers you a way out. Just make peace with me. And the Lord says, no, you need to trust in me. I will save you. Okay? And then there's, there's another thing I want to point out to you, something that is really, really telling, and it's, it's really interesting. Here, the Lord says, I will bring you up out of your misery into the land. And this is what the Rabshaka says. He says, you'll drink from your own vine and fig tree until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So Rabshaka is pointing them back. He says, remember when the Lord brought you out of Egypt? I'll take you out of here. And it sounds like a good thing. It sounds like the same promise that the Lord made, but it all hinges on one word, bring and take. And they are different words in the Hebrew. The Lord uses a word that has a very positive connotation. I'll bring you there. I'll lead you. I'll be like a father to you. The Rav Shaka says, I will take you. The other ways you could translate that word is seize, arrest, capture. He's like, I will take you to a new land. And so it kind of sounds good, but it all hinges on the one word. And a lot of false teaching in our world hinges on small things. It all sounds really good. And then you actually take a look at it and you go, that's not the same thing that the Lord said. It's actually different. And so this is how false prophets work. And remember, this could be Isaiah's own son. He has a prophetic lineage. Maybe we should listen to him. He's telling us a lot of truths. So this guy has all the trappings of a true teacher, but there's just these small things that give him away. That his intention is not for them to do well. His intention is to harm them. And, he, and sometimes he gives away his character too, right? I'll make you drink all that stuff, and I'll make you eat. It's like, wow, that's actually horrible. But then he kind of honeys his words. He's like, oh, I'm sorry I said that. Let me switch back. I want to bless you. I want you to do well. right? So he gives himself away. But he, he's the one who has the army. The Lord has not, at this point, shown up. He's the one who has the army. So this is an incredibly tempting offer. Okay, and this is the same offer that has confronted God's people over and over and over again. Here's the Lord's covenant. Do you want to be faithful to him, or do you want a different covenant with someone else? This is, look, in 1 Kings 18, 21. It says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Actually, that's exactly what happens in Isaiah, too. They don't respond to the Rabshakeh. Interesting. But it says, no one, Jesus said something similar, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God. That says money. The actual word there is mammon. Money, mammon. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus is saying, okay, make a decision. Who are you going to serve? Elijah was saying the same thing. And now the Rav Shaka is actually doing that. The false prophet is saying, all right, what do you want? You have a decision to make. And this is the response of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the king, represents the people. And so when he makes a choice, they all follow it, right? And this is what he does. In, in chapter 37, verse 1, it says, okay, actually, we'll start in verse 21 of chapter 36. So he, he, he puts this choice before them. The Lord can't save you, so make peace with me. And it says, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply. Because the king had commanded, do not answer him. And then jump down to 37 verse 1. The, Hezekiah's people bring him the message that they received from the Rabshakeh. And Hezekiah, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put off sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. So what, what he does first is he mourns. He demonstrates the true emotion that he's feeling, which is fear and sadness. Because his country has already been conquered, and the only thing left is Jerusalem. But then he goes into the temple of the Lord. So he has a time of mournful prayer. Okay? And look at this. And then verse, in verse 2, let's keep reading. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They, and, okay, so then he seeks out a spiritual mentor. See, Isaiah was older than Hezekiah and had actually prophesied to his father as well. And he says, I need, some, I need some help. I need some advice, some counsel. And so he sends his people to get Isaiah, right? How many times do we make important decisions and never think to ourselves to ask someone wiser than ourselves? There's a lot of people wiser than me. I hope that I'll have the humility to ask for help. But a lot of times I don't. I just do whatever I think is right. And if I was in Hezekiah's shoes, I'd be like, hey, no problem. We'll surrender. Just don't kill everyone. I, like if I was a king and I was responsible for all these people, I don't want them to die. That's my job. Keep them alive. Right? But instead, he doesn't just do whatever he wants. He actually prays to the Lord and then seeks advice from a spiritual mentor. And then, and then Isaiah gives him a word from the Lord. It says in verse 6, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I am going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So the Lord says, don't be afraid. I am actually going to deal with this guy. His blasphemy, his things that he said about me that are untrue, I'm going to deal with it. It's not your job. And then it says, and then Hezekiah makes a decision. In verse, in verse 14 through 20, he actually goes to pray again, and the conclusion of his prayer is his decision. It says in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So now he makes his decision. He says, all those false gods, he was right. Those are false gods, and they couldn't save them. But you can save us, and I'm going to trust in you. And so this is a good model for us. When we're faced with a choice between God and another covenant being offered by a false prophet. And sometimes it's not even, it's not like the Rabshaka where he's actually telling us these things. It's just the pattern of our world. People just do whatever pleases them, and they don't have a relationship with God, and they don't have a covenant with him, and they don't follow it. Okay, and so I remember a time where actually I, I kind of followed this pattern. I was wondering, I was like, man, did I ever do this? And I remember a time when I was studying the scriptures, and I felt incredibly cut to the heart. And I began to weep, and in my heart I was praying. And then my spiritual mentor, who was sitting right next to me, gave me advice and we read some scripture, and I prayerfully the next week got baptized. Amen? It's like, wow, it works. <laughs> I made the right choice, and normally I wouldn't have, because the world had a lot of things to offer me that I had to give up to become a follower of Jesus and to have a covenant with the Lord. But this pattern works. Not that it, you, know, you have to do this exactly, but it's a good model to follow. right? So this is what he says. That's his decision. Lord, save us. We're not going to trust in ourselves. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. This is how God responds to this decision. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Concerning the king of Assyria, he will not enter this city. Remember what the king of Assyria said? I trapped him like a caged bird. Well, guess what he didn't do? Enter the city. Even the king of Assyria knew it didn't work. He will not enter this city. I lost my place. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp. We have a siege ramp at Lachish. We don't have one in Jerusalem against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Shahrazer cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Look what has happened to Sennacherib. In all his power... We hardly even know who he is today. And even in his own life, it did not go well for him. His sons, remember the Lord said, I will make him hear a certain report and he'll go back and I will cut him down with the sword. Well, his own sons did that to him. Maybe a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, how do you, this for that. Remember, you took Isaiah's son? Well, your own sons are going to kill you. It could be. I'm speculating a little bit, but it's amazing how many things the word of God, how, how deep we can get into it if we just... Think about it and study it deeply, right? There's just so many things that we see. 
But he says, no, it's not going to go well for you. And the Lord struck down his entire army. And guess what? The Assyrian Empire did not last for a lot longer after that. It's hard to replace 185,000 men of professional soldiers. And that's the situation they found themselves in. And we return to this. The prophetic message is reliable. But there, all, there are false teachers who come up and they teach false things. And we have to be able to discern the truth through prayer, through advice, through the word of God. And most importantly, as we, as we go to communion, by examining the fruit. Remember how Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them? He was talking about false teachers. The Rabshaka was not a good guy. He was just pretending to be. And that became clear in the way that he spoke and the things that he wanted. And Jesus ultimately was confirmed to be a true teacher and the greatest prophet because of the way that he lived. Not because of the miracles that he did. Those mattered. They were helpful. But that wasn't what confirmed him. You know, the Bible actually says that it's possible to counterfeit a miracle. And so miracles don't confirm the truth. What does is the character of the one speaking. And Jesus demonstrated the greatest possible character and faithfulness to God when he was willing to turn down Satan's covenant, to take God's covenant, which entailed him dying on a cross for us. And so when we are wondering, what path should I take? Jesus is the prophet that we can trust. Amen. So let's pray. And as we take communion, let's meditate on these things. Dear Lord, we thank you, thank you so much that Jesus is a trustworthy prophet, that Isaiah was a trustworthy prophet, and that false prophets are exposed by the things that they say and the way that they live. I pray that we would have the wisdom to discern between the two. I pray also, Lord, that we would not become arrogant and become like the Rabshaka, but that we would always in humility serve you just like Jesus did, going to the cross and in humility laying down his own life for the good of others, which is what we are called to as well. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.